If you've got a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open that up to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 13. We're in the middle of a series called City on a Hill. Basically asking the question, what does it look like to be God's transformed people shining in our city and shining in our world for the glory of Christ? That's the question we're asking. And we're asking it by basically framing up a number of things that we want to pursue passionately, wholeheartedly as members of, of the same local church. So, so far in the series, just to catch you up, uh, if you're new, is we started with pursuing transformation. Basically, the idea being that we want to be a, a congregation that is so grounded and rooted in the truth of God's word that our lives are bearing fruit and we're changing by the grace of God through his Holy Spirit and through his word. So we started with pursuing transformation. Then last week, if you were here last Sunday, we talked about pursuing Worship and the way in which God assembles his people. He's always done this. He assembles his people and he deposits things. He meets with us. He makes us strong. Even when we do ordinary things that might not register at our conscious level as changing us, he's doing deep things when we sing. He's doing deep things when we have his word open on our laps and we're giving ourselves to the study of it. When we're gathered around the waters of baptism and at the Lord's table. He's doing things in us all the while, uh, creating ballast and stability in our faith. And then this morning, we transition to another pursuit, and we're, we're going to talk basically about our shared life together as a local church, and that we pursue rich, deep spiritual community together. That's what this text is going to show us. So follow along if you would. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them, and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The context of this entire chapter is a people of faith a congregation of believers. Matter of fact, in the very next verse, it talks about leaders in the congregation, nameable elders in the church in verse 7. Later in verse 17, it picks up on that same thing. So we're in the household of faith all throughout this chapter, and it's giving us a sense of what do we do to get strong? What are the injunctions, the exhortations? And they're packed in here, 19 commands in 17 verses. It's packed in tightly. And I think one of the points that comes through is, is this, that, um, that we don't do well in isolation. Um, we don't thrive in isolation. I read a story about an elderly woman named Natalie in Sydney, Australia. She had lived in the same uh, flat in Sydney, Australia for 70 years. And in 2000, July of 2011, an older woman reported to the police that she couldn't get a hold 
of Natalie. And so the officials went by to kind of make, make a courtesy call, knocked on the door. Wow, what's that? <laughs> a different knock. <laughs> officials went by, knocked on the door, got inside, and found that she was dead. And, and they found and discovered that she had actually died of natural causes eight years earlier. And so as they investigated the scene, they found no evidence of a crime. There was no wrongdoing, right? But the writer of the article who tells the story said this, but there was a crime. Not, not the kind of crime suspects are handcuffed and jailed for, but a crime of forgetting, a crime of isolation. The, the article was entitled, I Miss the Good Old Days When People Noticed If You Died. <laughs> you may remember, if you're familiar with the origins of all things, as the story is related in the book of Genesis, and there are just four chapters in, and there's, there's just upheavals in family, and, and so Cain, in a fit of rage and jealousy, kills his younger brother, Abel, and God comes up and he says, hey, where's your brother? Where's Abel? Of course, he knows the answer to the question, but he's inviting him into the, the light. And what, is, what does Cain famously say? Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, what's he have to do with me? What do I care about Abel? Look, that attitude very tragically can creep into the church. What's her trial her suffering have to do with me? What do his addiction issues have to do with me? What's their crumbling marriage have to do with me? I'm doing well. It's sort of a live and let live approach. It's not what we're meant for. God calls his church to be a community of faith that rallies around. We know each other. We relate deeply. We're covenanted together for the good and well-being of one another. Look, when Jesus unleashed his church on the Roman Empire in the first century filled them with his Holy Spirit and sent them out. What rocked the Roman world in the first century and arrested the attention of the world wasn't just a compelling message. It was a compelling community. You can almost see the unbelievers in the Roman Empire sort of coming up with their hands on the, on the window pane, looking inside at these strange things, these Christians, these deep ways in which they loved one another. It was meant to be that way, right? Jesus set it up. He said, here's how they're going to know it's real. They're going to see the way you love one another, then they're going to believe you. It's going it's to inject credibility into the message of the gospel when they see the love of God's people for one another. And so informed by this passage, I want to offer us four words that describe what we should be aiming at together as a local church. Four words. The first is this, family. We're aiming at something that feels like family. We love one another. You see right there in verse 1, look at it. Let brotherly love continue. Consider for a moment what the Apostle John says later in the New Testament when he says this, 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life. What's proof that we're alive spiritually? John's about to tell us. We know we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. Do you get how radical that is of a statement about the love of 
members of the body of Christ. In other words, one of the ways that it becomes evident that we're not just cultural Christians, right, living in a kind of convenient Christianity, going through the motions of religious faith, one of the evidences we find ourselves loving brothers and sisters in the faith and loving them in ways that, that feel like family. It feels like you're all in, laying your life down for one another in at least three ways. The first is this, we, we meet one another's needs. We meet one another's needs. The early Christians were known for this. Matter of fact, even the skeptics of the early times of the church and development of the church even noticed these things. There was a man named Lucian. He was no friend of Christianity, a philosopher in the early second century. And he was a cynic and a skeptic. And he wrote a number of things that were just pieces that just mocked Christianity. And one of them was called the Death, Death of Peregrinus. Or Peregrinus. And here's what he said. He's, he's making a passing reference to Christians. But pick up what he, what he mentions here. He says, they worship the man in Palestine who was crucified, convince themselves that they will live forever, despise death and most willingly give themselves to it. Moreover, that first lawgiver of theirs, he's talking about Jesus, that first lawgiver of theirs persuaded them that they are all brothers. They despised their own privacy and viewed their possessions as common property. He's saying this, this Jesus from Nazareth told them they were family and they believed it. And they're actually living like it's true. You should see them just parting with their stuff to make sure that others are okay. Living toward one another with tremendous sacrifice. So we meet one another's needs. Second, we share one another's burdens. We share one another's burdens. Look at verse 3. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. So <clears throat> prison, being imprisoned for the faith was a common feature and regular feature in early Christianity. In some parts of the world it still is, but it was a regular feature in early Christianity. You read the early documents, you read a book like the book of Acts, and you find them in jail all the time, right? So Peter's in jail with James, James gets killed, Peter gets out. Paul's in jail with Silas, they both get out, then Paul's back in, right? They're, they're just in and out of jail, right? They're imprisoned for their faith. It's a regular feature that attends Christianity throughout, throughout the centuries where there's pushback and hostility in certain cultures that leads to the imprisonment of those who proclaim the gospel. Earlier in this same letter, in Hebrews chapter 10, it says this, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that is, after you became a Christian, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach or shamed in public and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. And, and it wasn't just limited to Christian brothers and sisters who were locked up for their faith. They had compassion on all manner of suffering in the body of Christ. That's why Paul said, for example, in Romans chapter 12, weep with those who weep. But what are they weeping about? Doesn't matter, you join them, you enter in, you ask the question, you find out, you enter into their world, you weep with them, you rejoice with them. We're together, we're, 
We're family, right? No part of the body, Paul says, suffers alone. He's using this metaphor, right, of, of the human body. You think about your whole human body. It's, it's a unit, right? You, you stub your toe, the rest of your body doesn't say, oh, it stinks to be you, right? It's, it's not like, hey, the stub toe is just throbbing down there and everybody else is like, you, you had to be an idiot and go kick the table. Like, that's not what your body does. What happens? You stub your toe, your toe is throbbing, your mouth is screaming. Your hand reaches down to comfort, right? The one foot that works is hopping, right? Your whole body is one thing together. It's saying, one of us is suffering, all of us is suffering. Paul uses that as one of the dominant metaphors of the body of Christ. He's, You're a body. The members experience the life of the body together. That, that's why, practically speaking, that's why as a church, we... We ratchet up the importance of this, this word, membership. That membership matters. We don't want to just kind of sit loosely in fellowship and kind of come to a gathering but not be meaningfully interconnected in our relationships. We want to be members all in, not just attending but sharing life together, right? You think about it. So the, the triune God got all this started Church was his idea, and it makes sense. He's lived in community for all eternity. Creation was him enlarging the circle of community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in happy, glorious, joyous community for eternity past. Creation is an overflow. Welcome into this joy of community. And then the church. The church is his idea, so he doesn't save us and then and call us into a life of perpetual isolation. He says... Now you're mine, and now you get brothers and sisters. Look around. Those are your brothers and sisters. You got them all over the planet, but you also have them in your local church where you express that family in really meaningful and deep ways where we are our brother's keeper. In the local church, we are our brother's keeper. I think about stories in this faith family. I think about small groups these past few years who have gathered around members of our church who have lost loved ones and just rallied around them. Meals, presence, being present is what I mean by that. Tears, friendship, help, encouragement. I think of members of, of our church who minister to families who have children with special needs and you show up Sunday in and Sunday out and sometimes throughout the week eager it's a joy to serve. I love your family. Coming alongside, being a blessing. I think about advocacy teams here, teams that care for missionaries on the other side of the world. And those missionaries know we have a specific group of people who are constantly thinking about us, what we're doing. They're reading all our updates. They're sending letters back from their side. They're sending with that letter. They're sending they're sending Alabama white barbecue sauce. They're sending some of our favorite things, and it just makes life a little bit more sustainable on our side of the world. That's, that's what it means. Let brotherly love continue. In other words, let those stories just multiply all over the place, hundreds and hundreds of different ways in which it's expressed. We don't want this verse to just sit on a page in the Bible and die there. We, we want it to find expression in our community. So we meet one another's needs. We share one another's burdens. Third, we give one another grace. 
We give one another grace. If you've been around Christianity or if you're familiar with Christian history, you know sometimes we get so worked up about our theology and our system of thinking that we forget we're actually supposed to be family. We're supposed to treat each other well and we're supposed to still keep Romans 12, 10, outdo one another in showing honor even if we have disagreements, even if those disagreements are substantial. So you think about two, two guys from the Christian history who didn't agree, had significant disagreements in theology. John Wesley and George Whitfield. One considered what, what many call Calvinism to be a fairly faithful representation of what the Bible teaches about God and about salvation. The other didn't. Whitfield was a Calvinist. Wesley wasn't a Calvinist. And, and yet, I love when you dig into certain moments in church history and you see people with significant differences honoring one another and saying, hey, we've got the gospel in common. So both of these guys are in heaven now, so I trust it's all been sorted out, which one was right, which one was wrong, or where it was in the middle. But even while they were on this earth, they wanted to show they we're family. And so George Whitfield wrote this letter to Wesley. I love how it starts. My honored friend and brother, hearken to a child. I beseech you by the mercies of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, if you would have my love confirmed toward you. Why should we dispute when there is no possibility of convincing? Will it not in the end destroy brotherly love and insensibly take from us that cordial union and sweetness of soul which I pray may always remain between us? How glad would the enemies of our Lord be to see us divided? Honored sir, let us offer salvation freely to all by the blood of Jesus. <laughs> There's the central gospel they shared in common. He says, let's celebrate our commonness, right? Let us offer salvation freely to all by the blood of Jesus. And whatever light God has communicated to us, let us freely communicate to others. More of that, right? Particularly in our, our day of rampant evangelical tribalism. So much factions, and I'm of this one, and I'm of that one, and this is more superior to yours, and we actually take the faith serious, and you guys don't. It's just so, so many rivalries, not coming around and celebrating that the gospel is more central than, than the personal convictions that may divide us. Sobrook Hills, and I'm going to weave the Sobrook Hills section into each of the points. So here's the first Sobrook Hills. You might want to write this at the bottom of your page. Here's the first one. Don't just attend, join. Meaning jump into the membership of, of the church and take the plunge. What are you waiting on, right? Some of you have been coming here. You've hopefully been growing in your faith, maybe even growing in relationships with others. Take the plunge. Become family. Get folded into this fellowship in a covenant bond kind of way. So family, we love one another. Second picture is this, haven. We invite others in. We invite others in. And a couple ways to think about that. The first is this. We're called to glad-hearted fellowship. We're called to glad-hearted fellowship. You know, so often in the scriptures, hospitality is, is laid before Christians as really important. And so often that hospitality 
is meant to be reflected in the church. So believers toward other believers and how they treat one another. And even uh, in Romans chapter 15, verse 7, Paul says, even the way that we greet other Christians should look like the gospel, should remind people of this bigger story. He says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Our hospitality can't just be southern. It's supposed to be informed by good news, like Christ welcomed you. That's how wide-armed, wholehearted, robust your welcome should be to other followers of Christ. So we're called to glad-hearted fellowship. Next, we're called to open-handed generosity. Open-handed generosity, and this is where the English Standard Version gets the translation prize for this particular verse. Because the ESV adds those two words at the end, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Maybe familiar with the, the word xenophobia, which means a fear of strangers. That's the two Greek words that mean fear and stranger. But the author here is using part of that same Greek word, but here it's not xenophobia, it's philoxenia. It's not a fear of strangers, it's a phileo, it's a love of strangers. It's the opposite of a fear of strangers. It's a welcome. I know you're new. Come on in. We're glad you're here. You see, in verse, in verse 2, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, to outsiders. For by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it, which is a little weird to read that particular phrase. And it's like, what, what are you getting at? Why did you add the whole angels bit? thing, right? Wasn't ready for that. <clears throat> Here's what he's referring to. He's referring back to a, a classic story deep in the annals of Old Testament history back in Genesis chapter 18. It's the hottest part of the day. And Abram looks up from his house and he sees three men standing there in the hottest part of the day. They're strangers, never met you guys before, but they're on your property. They're right here. And what does Abraham do? He goes into full hospitality mode. He says, I know you're hot. Sit here. I've got a great shade tree. You sit down, don't move a muscle, sit down. I'll get you water, I'll get your feet clean, and then I'm going to go off and I'm going to prepare a great meal. I'm going to make, I'm going to churn some fresh milk. And so he sits them down, and the text says, ran. Abraham didn't walk, he ran. And he said, that one, that calf, prepare that meat. We've got guests. Finest calf that he could find. That's the one. And then he says, while you're preparing the meat, I'll churn fresh milk. And he comes back to these guys, and he's got water for their feet, he's got bread, he's got steak, he's got milk, he's got shade. It's welcome, thoroughgoing, I'm going to take care of all your needs right here, glad you're here. And then he finds out they're angelic messengers. And that's what Hebrews 13 is saying. In other words, the point isn't, you know, do something nice for people, you might get lucky and they turn out to be angels. That, that's not the main idea. Um, in the Old Testament, there's something called theophany. That means it's a visible manifestation of the invisible God. It's a visible manifestation of the presence of God. It's almost like moments where you could write, God was here in this exact spot. And oftentimes, when God would appear in a manifest way, they would write, God was here. They would rename the place. Penuel, like they would name it after what God did. On this spot is no longer, that rock's not the same as it was before. It's, it's been touched by heaven. 
heaven came down in this place, right? And so it, one chapter ago in Hebrews chapter 12, we have this theophany, right? Remember, he's basically saying, you remember Mount Sinai? Remember how awesome that was back there? When our ancestors heard the voice of God and he spoke and gave us his law? And Mount Sinai from that moment on wasn't just some other mountain. It was Sinai. It was God spoke here. God carved in, in the side of that mountain. I was here. It's not the same way it was before. We look at that mountain different now because God was here. And he's saying something really surprising in chapter 13 because he says, here's another theophany story. And it's not Sinai. He says, remember that time when Abraham didn't realize who he was cooking for? You remember that time he went and he just sat them down in the shade and then he went and got milk and he got bread and he got meat and he came back with water and it turned out to be messengers of God himself. And so God didn't just scratch his name, I was here in the side of Mount Sinai. He scratched his name in that shade tree in Abraham's front yard. In other words, God blessed hospitality forever. Hospitality is legendary now. God came into this expression. You think about what it's like to not be on the receiving end of hospitality. You think about what it's like to be the stranger in biblical terminology. The stranger in biblical terminology was the person who was here, but they're not from here. And we all know they're not from here because their accent's not right or they, whatever. Whatever it is telling us you're not from here and yet you're here. You ever walk up to um, a group of people, maybe they're sort of standing in a circle and you come and you're just outside the circle and the circle doesn't open? You ever been in that situation before? And it's like, you're thinking after two minutes, do you have no peripheral vision at all? Like, I've been standing here for two minutes. Are you not gonna break the circle and let a guy in? How long am I supposed to wait here, right? You've experienced maybe some of that before. Christians, friends, should be proficient circle openers. Should be people with great peripheral vision. Look this way. Oh, there you are. Come on in. That, that's, it's just enlarging the circle. It's what we've been doing for thousands of years. Christians enlarge the circle. You come on in. I saw you standing outside. You come in. You belong here, right? You ever hang out with a group of people and 80% of what they say all night while you're there are inside jokes that everybody gets except for you? Right? How fun is that? And it's every time they all die laughing, what is it saying to you? You don't belong. You're not one of us. That's not the way of Christ. This text says Christians do hospitality. It's an instinct. People who are far from home, Christians are like, so glad you're here. Welcome here. Even literally. So you might be in college. Maybe you're at Sanford or one of the colleges nearby. You got family who are hundreds of miles away, maybe on the other side of the ocean. Guess what? We'll be your family. We will be your family. I'm putting the people in this room on the hook. We'll do this. We'll be that family for you. We're Christians. We've been doing this for a long time. We love doing this. Loneliness should be non-existent in the local church. Loneliness should be increasingly non-existent in the city because the church is here. Because Christians are here. Psalm 68 opens a window into the heart of our God in six words. It says... God sets the lonely in families. 
You know, think about all the things. God keeps the planets spinning. He's doing all kinds of things we couldn't even imagine or dream of. You know what else he's doing? He's in heaven. He's looking down and saying, there's somebody lonely. Set them in this family. Lonely, I'm going to set you in this family. He's setting the lonely in families. He loves doing this. Friends, loneliness is a crisis in our world. Article came out last year in the New York Times. The title struck me as a little bit odd, but the tone was quite serious. January 17, 2018. UK appoints a minister for loneliness. Quote, Britain has a serious problem with loneliness. More than 9 million people in the country often or always feel lonely, according to a 2017 report. And then appointing this minister of loneliness in the UK, the prime minister issued this statement. I want to confront this challenge for our society and for all of us to take action to address the loneliness endured by the elderly, by carers, by those who have lost loved ones, people who have no one to talk to or to share their thoughts and experiences with. Something was being noticed all over the place because later that very same year in 2017 in the Harvard Business Review, the former U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, related his experience in these words. The most common illness in the patients I saw was loneliness. And he writes the whole article on loneliness as an epidemic in the workplace. We can do something about the crisis of loneliness. Why? Because we're Christians. Because we're circle openers. We say, you're, you're lonely, you, you don't have family? That's us, come on in. We're a community of faith. Here's the Sobrook Hills. Welcome others with gospel intentionality. Welcome with gospel intentionality. So just think, who around you is on the fringes? Who on your street, on your block, needs to see the gospel in living color. Girls, students, who's at the table by herself in the cafeteria? Guess what, you're up because you're a Christian. So you go get her. Family, haven, third, holy. Holy, the point underneath this is we're being made new. We're this vibrant, we're called to be a vibrant counterculture. I want to see, I did this in the first service, I want to see how many of you were at Brook Hills when this was a saying, we're different to make a difference. Raise your hand, nice and high. Praise God for your faithfulness over these many years, right? The, the, the saying may have dropped off in recent years, but I hope the reality hasn't. Matter of fact, the reality can't if we're going to be faithful to God's word, if we're going to be doers of God's word, then yeah, we're called to be different, to make a difference. To stand out in the world, to be salt and light. Look at that in verse 4. Marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. He's picking on just two issues. It's just the tip of the iceberg. He's not trying to say, these are all the ways in which the church is salt and light. These are the only two ways in which the church looks different from the world. He's just saying, I'm just going to choose a sampling and what relevant sampling that is, right? 
in our culture? You think about how much devastation in the world is owing to the breakdown of marriage and sexuality on one hand and to the thirst and craving for wealth and power on the other hand. You just think about the havoc that has wreaked in our world. We could sit down, I would imagine, and we could open up a mic and we could talk for hours from maybe your own story or from stories of people very, very close to us, stories of tremendous brokenness that comes when God's design is set aside and we go it on our own. And these are ways in which the writer of the Hebrews is saying the church should stand out. The church swims upstream. The church looks different than the world. We're called to be a counterculture, not a drum-banging, holiness, pharisaical counterculture, a vibrant, life-giving, flourishing counterculture, right? Look, a joyful marriage is becoming a weird thing in our world, isn't it? Lean into the joy of your marriage. Let it shine. It's a beautiful, glorious thing that you can't see in these parts, right? Singleness to the glory of God is a beautiful thing. Singleness that recognizes that physical intimacy is reserved by God in His design. It's reserved for one context, one man, one woman, in a covenant relationship in marriage until the end. And living by faith as His people, as this countercultural community, means we trust that God is good and God's ideas are the best ones. His ways are right, His design is for our good. There's only flourishing when we listen to Him. It's only good when we listen to him. As members of the church who follow Jesus, we remind ourselves, this is part of what community's like, is we remind ourselves that God's ways are best. We don't just talk about it, we help one another. Why do we have small groups? Again, practically, think about the church of Brook Hills. Why do we have small groups? We don't want anybody in this church feeling like you're in the battle by yourself. Hey, hope it goes well. No, you're your brother's keeper. Get in there. You know them well enough. Get in there. Fight with them. Be a comrade in the battle, in the fight of the Christian faith. We don't want to see any of our brothers or sisters taken down by the deceitfulness of sin. So much of Hebrews is about that. It's sort of us rallying together, grabbing each other by the scruff of the neck and saying, don't turn back. I'm not either. You hold me, I'll hold you. We'll make it to the end together. This is persevering faith. Why, why don't we have um, recovery groups at Brook Hills? Why don't we have small groups that are focused on particular life difficulties and stages? It, the answer is because we don't want to just talk about freedom. We want to experience it. And we want to help one another experience it together. Holiness, somewhere along the line, holiness got a bad rap. Somewhere along the line, holiness got hijacked. And it became this understanding in the broader culture that this is the, the rigorous rules of people who want to feel superior to those around them. And so they do their holiness bit, and they kind of build their own little Christian subculture and, and um, you know, beat all their drums together. That, that, friend, that is not what Christian holiness really means. By the way, holiness in the Bible is a beautiful word. It needs to be reclaimed. Maybe the definition needs to be repopulated with better, truer notions. If you got the idea that Christian friends of yours 
Maybe you've never believed in Christ. You're not consider yourself a follower of Jesus. If you got the idea that holiness was Christian's way of sort of asserting our superiority in the culture, just give me a moment just to clarify for a second. Here's the, here's the real story. Christians are convinced that Jesus Christ is the only righteous person who ever lived. There's only been one who has really obeyed God. The rest of us are a wreck. The rest of us have blood on our hands, sin on our ledger, from top to bottom, innumerable sins against God and other people. It's not pretty, and there's nothing we can do to wipe it out, which is why the only thing that Christians have ever boasted in for 2,000 years is the cross. We boast in the cross. We boast in the righteousness that was earned by someone else and given to us. When you did what? Jump through hoops? No, when we believed. We believed and he gave us his righteousness. He took my sin to the cross, died in my place as a substitute for my sin, bore God's just, just wrath against my unholiness, and then I believe and it's all mine. He's my father. I have family forever. My sins have been paid for. That's why we boast in the cross. Look, it's, it's that truth that has written a thousand hymns in the past centuries. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. That's our, that's our self-conscious reality. Wretches we all. <laughs> saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. Was blind, now I see. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Horatius Benar's great hymn, Thy Works Not Mine. He says, Thy works not mine, O Christ. Speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done. They bid my fears depart. Fanny Crosby, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There's a precious fountain. Free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. Friend, believe this good news. This is the one savior and hope of the world. Trust in the one who offered his life for yours, Trust in the one who said, you give me my sin, I'll go to the cross, I'll come back, I'll give you my life. I'll give you new life, I'll give you righteousness, and I'll give you my spirit to empower you for change. The next point is this, our rhythms are confession, repentance, and gospel reminders. That's the rhythms of the church. It's what we do in here. Confession, repentance, gospel reminders. So we don't just acknowledge that we've sinned and then leave. That would be insufficient. We acknowledge that we've sinned and then we talk about how he's done something about our sin by sending Jesus the righteous to die in our place. Matter of fact, that note is the last one that we end our gatherings on almost every single Sunday. The, look, we could position the Lord's Supper at any point in the gathering. There's no like a command that you have to put it somewhere in the middle or the beginning or at the end. I love the fact that we commonly do it at the end. Why? Because we still taste grace on our way out. Literally. Literally tasting. The last taste we had in our gathering wasn't law. 
It was grace. It was look at what God has done. We drink the cup of blessing and it's still on our lips as we leave. Sobrook Hills, join a small group. If you're not in a small group, join a small group. We need to pursue deeper relationships. We, need, we can't just sit in rows like we're doing now. Important as gathering faithfully is, we need to connect meaningfully. We need to sit in circles. At some point, maybe later, I, I would encourage you, consider making a resource like this book I just finished called Made for Friendship by Drew Hunter. Consider studying that together with your small group and just saying, hey, how, do we, how can we reflect what it means to be deeply connected as friends in the gospel? Family, haven, holy, his. His. We live on his promise. Look there at verse 5. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Here's the point. We persevere in faith. We persevere in faith. I want you to notice. Notice the motivating engine of change particularly as it relates to, in this verse, the motivating engine for contentment in this life. This text doesn't say, wow, you're the most selfish person I've ever known, <laughs> right? How about giving a little from time to time? You know, experience freedom by stop being so selfish and so greedy. That's not what this text does. The dynamic is totally different. Notice, it's be satisfied with what you have, for he himself said, I'll never leave you. You feel how totally different that is in tone? It's not barking orders and shaming the church. It's, I won't leave. I've got you, so give yourself sacrificially. I've got you under my control, in my hand. Radical selflessness, radical love and generosity and risk in this text grows out of a heart that believes God is for us. It's gospel-motivated change. As a community of faith, we're committed to help each other persevere all the way to the end of our Christian life. And the promise that's here is we're not called to do it on our own, to slug it out by ourselves, Lone Ranger Christians. But I love the assurance that's in this text. It's even clearer in the original. So in the original language of the New Testament, the end of verse 5 is just awesome. Um, English teachers will get a little bothered by it because English teachers get on your case if there's a double negative. And um, in the last nine words, there, there's a double negative followed by a triple negative. So you might have even thought, I'm not even sure, I didn't even know a triple negative was possible, right? Uh, God goes exceedingly abundantly all above all that we could ask or imagine. So he's got a double negative and then a verb and then a triple negative and then a verb. Of the last nine words in that verse, five of them mean never. <laughs> five nevers in the last... Nine words, it sounds something like this. I will never, never leave you. I will never, never, never forsake you. But it's even better in the original because they front load it. The emphasis on the word never, so the nevers are put before the verb. So it's basically roughly translated, never, never will I leave you. Never, never, never will I forsake you. <laughs> How rich is that? 
God is saying, it's not going to happen. Ever, 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 ever going to happen. One of the great hymns of history was almost certainly written by someone with the knowledge of ancient Greek and Hebrews 13.5 because it follows the exact cadence of two negatives and then three negatives and the assurance that God is with us always. It's a, a verse you may be well familiar with. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Church, we, we don't do well in isolation. We need spiritual community. And the New Testament picture of our life together as a church is an all-in picture. It's all-in believers. It is, I've got your back, you charge the hill, and I'm right with you. It's, I'm going to be praying and interceding for you, and I'm going to be say, saying, Satan, not today. I'm going to be saying, take your hands off. I'm fighting with you. I'm going to war with you. It's, maybe it's accountability. It may be even intervention. It's, it's, bro, this is owning your life. This stuff is killing you. I'm coming over. Maybe it's that, right? Maybe it's reading a book that has nothing to do with your season of life, but you're reading it because somebody in your small group is going through something. Or maybe it's walking into somebody's life when everybody else is walking out of their lives, and that's what the church does, right? Maybe it's seeing a friend who's battling with guilt and shame, and you're right there front row seat, and you're saying, hey, listen, I know the accuser's in your ears. I'm going to say this loud, okay? The cross is bigger than that. The cross is big enough for this. That thing that you were into, the gospel is bigger. Friends, the church is to be a billboard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Family, haven, holy, his. His. 